you would turn to Ephesians as we get into the scriptures, though, as we move on this morning. And if you would stand with me, please, in honor of God's word. We certainly want to keep Florida um, and all of those folks who have property down there, all of those folks who have people down there. I know I have family members and some of my former... Um, it's encouraging that they send pictures and say we're hunkered down on the second floor of this dorm. Um, it's going to be a rough few days. So if we could just continually keep them in prayer, and that's going to be one of the things we're going to address today. Um, Paul tells us, starting in verse 11 in chapter 2 of Ephesians, Therefore remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in flesh by hands. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now... I love those words. He said the same thing in in Romans. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, and so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place by God or for God by the Spirit. Amen. You may be seated as we go into prayer this morning. Father, as we gather around your word, we want to lift up those who are in our immediate concern. Norma's mom, we ask that you would just continue to bring healing there and you would continue to um, bring wisdom and insight. And We just pray your peace be there um, for decisions that need to be made and just that your hands will be upon her and upon the doctors and all those involved in the process. Lord, we pray for little Azrian as well. We, 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 we lift Azrian up to you and we pray that your hands continue to be upon him. We are thankful, Lord, that he is able to be home, and we pray your peace be upon he and his mom and dad and and grandma and grandpa, that Chad and Valerie will be strengthened and they would see your hand and they would be encouraged. Lord, that Taj and Patty as well, Father, would just be seeing the peace of Christ and, and your hand upon that little boy in every step of the way. We pray for continued wisdom and insight for the doctors and for mom and dad, and we pray your peace be upon them. We pray for wisdom, Lord, and we pray for healing. We ask, Lord, for healing in the name of Jesus, that he would continue to just grow and he would heal in a, in a good way with the surgery that he's gone through. We ask, Father, that your name be glorified in it all. Lord, we pray for anybody else within our body who's dealing with cancer, who's dealing with end-of-life issues, colds and struggles, starts to the school year and new adventures, new jobs, challenges, and all of the things that we face on a daily basis that greatly unsettle us. Lord, I just want to lay those before you, before your throne this morning um, as we engage in your word and understand how, 
how much, Lord, you passionately love your people. Father, we pray for the state of Florida as well. We ask, Lord, that as, as the hurricane is hitting the Florida Keys now, Lord, and is moving up the western part of Florida, that you would show yourself to be powerful and merciful. Lord, that you would watch out for all of those folks who are still there for various reasons, that you would embolden, encourage, and protect those first system that hits our country, that the goodness of the people in this country would be seen, that the sarcasm, the cynicism, and the stupidity and foolishness of polarization, Lord, would be put off to the side, but that your good hand would be seen in the goodness of human beings. Father, that your name would be glorified and that the church would find itself useful in a time like this to be able to serve in a way that would bring glory to your name. That's what we want, Lord. We just want to be your hands and feet. And in times of crisis like this, Lord, we pray that we would stand out amongst the crowds. Even in the little things, Lord, we pray that you stir us to prayer. You stir us to what it is we can be doing, not just as a body, but as individuals. Well, we give this time to you this morning and we pray that you would open up your word to us and you would make it alive for us. Lord, that we would understand it, that we would take it to heart, that we would be transformed and changed by it. And we just give you praise and we give you glory in the name of Jesus. Amen. It is a frightening thing to watch the hurricane move up the coast and plow into different places. It's a frightening thing to see it happen in Houston. It's a frightening thing to see another hurricane out in the Atlantic building up speed and it's going to take a right-hand turn and it's going to go out into the waters. It's a frightening thing to see earthquakes in Mexico. What is just as frightening is the fact that we don't ever have real control over these things, do we? So we pray. If we can do nothing else, I encourage you pray because that's, that's free. And we're commanded to begin and end everything in prayer, so we pray um, for the people that are down there, for the first responders, for um, protection over everything and everyone. I don't know exactly what we can and will be doing as a church in response and in relation to this. I do know that the Assemblies of God, through their um, new general superintendent-elect, uh, is watching and waiting and putting some pieces together. So as opposed to in reinventing the wheel and then trying to do something that might be productive or not productive, we will wait until uh, the AG lets us know exactly what the Convoy of Hope, which is um, our benevolence arm, I guess, for a lack of a better way to put it. Uh, they were instantly in response to Houston, and they were sending semis down there with all of the supplies necessary once they discovered what they were. I suspect that this is probably going to be far worse than Harvey was, probably um, in line with Hurricane Andrew and whatnot um, in relation to what it looks like. And all we can do is just pray that the Lord would keep people in the palm of his hand as he always does. That's what we do. And uh, I would just encourage you all to be, you know, aware, as we all are, and prayerful that this just passes and we don't lose any lives. So as we enter into the Word this morning, I've titled it pretty simply, One New Man, being on vacation and walking through what it is, you know, I was going to do next. I had given this passage to Pastor Joe, and um, then in, with everything that he had going on, uh, I'm, I'm hopeful that I'm not repeating myself because I haven't been able to get a hold of him. If I have, you know, do your best not to fall asleep. Um, my skin is thick enough to where I can handle that, but just don't snore because you'd embarrass yourself. 
But I, I believe that, you know, he was to bring something else. So we are going to venture into the next portion of the text. And I've titled it, One New Man. And what I really want us to focus on this morning as we try to look at this big chunk of Scripture is that in Christ, the world has been reconciled to God the Father, bringing together both Jew and Gentile, and as a result, making one new man. But the key that we need to understand is that it just isn't human beings that have been reconciled to God. His good creation has been reconciled to him as well. This entire world has been redeemed in and through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. The, the scriptures tell us that. Paul emphasizes that in Romans, that even creation itself groans with eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed because this is his world. And he is in the process of bringing his plan to completion. But we aren't there yet. And things have been spiraling out of control for far more years than we really know. The world itself is and was an open rebellion against its creator. Each person doing whatever they wanted to do without regard for what was right, what was just, what was good for their common man. Gathered together as one great mass, they decide to build a monument to, guess what, themselves. Because that's what human beings do. The cult of self-deification and narcissistic thinking in self-centered ways had worked itself out in the worst of ways. Just hearing about this particular story, one would assume that, you know, I just looked at the news last night on the TV, but I don't own one, so that's not the case. Or that I opened up my newspaper and pulled that right out of the headlines because nothing is new under the sun. This is how people operate. Humanity in rebellion against the Creator has not changed one bit since the dawn of time. What has, however, as we have been learning in the text of scriptures that we've been reading, is our ability to go back home. We have access to the Father because of what Jesus did. That is what has changed. And that is worth understanding and looking at. And we will take a look at that more as we go through the text. But back to the story. So gathered on the plains of Shinar, humanity at the time decided to build a city and a tower to themselves. Letting the world know that we are the captains of our own fate and our own destiny. And we are the rulers of this world. Just one quick glance at the Weather Channel this morning would let every one of us know that no, we are not. No, we are not. This, of course, as many of you know, if you've read the book of Genesis, is the story of the Tower of Babel. Where in Genesis 11, we're told by the writer Moses, more than likely, that the world then had one language and was united as one people. Gathering together from the east, they had come up with the notion that here is where we will build the monument to ourselves. And the text of scripture tells us in Genesis 11, starting in verse 3, that they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And then they said, come and let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. It's a sad text of scripture, and we've learned over the course of this year that when humanity rebels against God, something has to take his place. Nature abhors a vacuum. So when humanity rebels against God, something must take his place. And self, as we have learned, typically being the primary replacement, when we dethrone God, we find that we fracture off and we become very selfish and we become very self-centered. 
It's always me versus you. I don't like the way you're doing things. You don't like the way I'm doing things. I have this little tribe of people over there, and you've got that little tribe of people over there, and there the twain shall meet in the middle. This is just how it is we operate. To think this is a new thing and that in this beautiful world that we live in is experiencing something brand new that it has never experienced before is to not know the history of our world. The scripture continues that the Lord said, Behold, they are one people and they have all one language and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. So in a move, as we take a look at this text of scripture, that seems to be the absolute ultimate punishment for humanity in its complete rebellion against God, their creator. And in a sense, it was when you take a look at it in that way. We do find God the Father, however, not surprised by the whole deal at all. Rather, he's setting the stage for the beginning of his rescue mission of a people who had absolutely no idea that they needed to be saved from anything. So why here? Why this morning, when we started in Ephesians chapter 2, are we all the way back in Genesis 1? Why are we talking about the final outworking of Act 2 in God's story, known as the fall, that started in Genesis 3 and it ends in chapter 11, when we are looking at what Paul is saying to a church in Ephesus all those thousands of years later? I have one word for you. Reunification. Reunification. That's why. You see, the story of God, even though it is broken up into 66 different books, it is one long, contiguous story from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, pointing to one person as the fulfillment of all of God's promises, and his name is Jesus. And one new man emerges into new creation, and then that new man, being alive in Christ, we then are to seek reconciliation with a lost world because we have the ability now in Jesus to do so here he fractures the world in Christ we're going to learn today that he brings us back together you see God had called Abraham in the next chapter in Genesis to be his in fact and from him would come the blessing and the salvation of the entire world from his seed would be the promised Messiah from his line came the people of Israel if you read through Genesis 12 and forward called by God given their freedom from slavery in Egypt as he brought them out, given their identity at Mount Sinai when Moses came down with the Ten Commandments and gave them the law and said, you are now my people. You are the people of Israel. And he gave them their mission. Be a light of revelation to the Gentiles. In other words, you be salt and light in the world in which I am launching you out into. First stop, the promised land. Freedom, identity, mission. You've heard that before. We'll go over it again and again and again. If this sounds familiar, that's good. It should sound familiar. It is the story of God. See, we've looked at this over the three years that I've been here, and we will continue to do so because it is absolutely important and essential that we know who God called and why he has called them. Not just that, we know him but who God has called and why he has called them. Because in the midst of that, people are called to love God, love other people, and tell them why. Starting right here in our very little community 
at Assembly of God Christian Center. That is the great commission and the greatest commandment. We are to love God, love people, tell them why. We overcomplicate it because we want to be impressed with ourselves and then it makes it more difficult and we can then qualify what it is we need to do and how kind do I really need to be to sister so-and-so or brother so-and-so. But it is very simple. We are to love God, love people, and tell them why. It has to be simple for me because I'm not a bright guy. See, this was supposed to have been the task of the people of Israel. And in fact, it still is the task of the people of Israel. Because you see, they were not a special people and therefore God called them out of Egypt. That's the mistake that we make. No, he made them his. In the midst of their brokenness, in the midst of their sin, in the midst of their rebellion, in the midst of their lostness, he made them his. He called them. Then he gave them a purpose in this world at Mount Sinai and sent them out. And that was what made the people of Israel special. That was what made the people of Israel special. That he called them and made them his. He didn't go, oh, here's a people that are doing exactly what they're supposed to. I do think I'll put my name on them. That's not how it worked. He called a broken people. Just, just read Exodus for a little while and you can find yourself there. I know I can. His calling of them is what made them special. You see, Isaiah and his book reminds the people of this, even as they are in exile in Babylon, in rebellion once again, when he says, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness, I will take you by the hand and keep you. Do you see, even when the people of God are fighting against what God wants, he is saying to them, listen, I will find you. I'm going to take you by the hand, and I'm going to make you mine. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Boy, doesn't that sound like what Jesus said in Luke chapter 4? Here's my mission, here's my plan, here's what it is. Why? Because that was the primary role of the people of Israel. To be a light of revelation in a dark world. To open the eyes that are blind. To bring out prisoners. And from the prison, those who sit in darkness. You see, they were to be a light to a lost, broken, and confused world. That's what they were supposed to be. Instead, they turned what? The light in on themselves. They said, we've got the corner and the market on God, and it's all about us. They were not fulfilling the call of God when Jesus showed up. And Paul talked about that the last time, how we are all dead. How we are all dead, but by grace we are all saved. That's what Paul's talking about there. That in Christ, new creation theology is the uniting together of the people of Israel with the Gentile world. Thus giving one new hope to all who would come to him. That was the whole purpose and the plan of Jesus coming. We are to be active agents. This is what Paul is talking about this morning. The calling home of the world back to God our creator. When he tells us in verses 12 and 13, he says, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You see, because God had called Israel. And strangers to the covenants of promise. Having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Because of what he did, not because of what we've done. You see, humanity has been fractured ever since that moment on the plains of Shinar. We have been fractured. They were fractured before, in fact, but it was not brought to its ultimate outworking where the Lord divided the entire world. You see, yet in the midst of all of that, God created a nation who was to let the world know he is calling us 
home. He wants us to come home if we would but humble ourselves and come back to him. The law and the prophets all testify to this. Paul says it over and over again. Jesus said it over and over again. If you remember our first reading from Paul's letter to the church in Rome, he says all have sinned. Let's make it easy, folks. We're all sailing in the same boat, and yet at the same time all are justified. All is not a complicated word in the Greek. You know what all means in the Greek? All. It's not one of those things where we're not entirely sure. See, but here's the problem. All have sinned and all are justified. That's his gift. We've learned that. But not all receive the gift, nor do all want the gift. Nor do all want the gift. In fact, most reject this gift of life. Bizarrely enough, they do so because they do not want to give up their right to self-rule. They don't want to give up their right to autonomy. To be the way they want to be. To say the things they want to say. To do the things they want to do. So instead of looking at this beautiful gift of grace that God has lavished upon the entire world, they say, I don't want that. Because that means I can't do what I want. And thus we hit a wall. Taking a quick glance again at the world and the newspaper and the news and exactly what that looks like, as well as knowing my own heart in the midst of all of this, I will tell you right now what happens when I step outside of the covering of God's umbrella. Autonomy and self-deification ain't all it's cracked up to be. In fact, if we are honest with ourselves, guess what? It is the problem with this world. It's the problem with this world. You see, only in Christ can we be made all he has created us to be. Only in him, Paul is telling us in this beautiful letter to the Ephesians, only in him can we fulfill the works that he has designed us for before we even existed. You see, that's Ephesians 2, 8, and 10. We learned that the last time that we gathered together. That you are his poem, you are his artwork. He has created you for a specific thing and only in Jesus can you be everything that you're supposed to be. Denying that and being yourself limits who Jesus wants to make you. And that's a dangerous thing. You see, Sinclair Ferguson said, nothing is a greater enemy to human autonomy than divine law. When we come face to face with this Jesus and he says, it's me or it's you, that's a problem. We have to answer that. Do I want it to be me or do I want it to be him? Nothing is so great a danger, an enemy to human autonomy than divine law. In order to become new, the old has to go. You can't keep the old. You see, that's the daily decision on our parts. And in Christ, now we have the ability to make that decision. Whereas before, we never could. See, verse 18 tells us that through him, and that's Christ, we both, both the people of Israel and the Gentile world, have access in one spirit to the Father. It's beautiful. Verse 11 gives us the therefore, that word that is starting this whole thing out. Therefore, being that we are his artwork and his poem, don't go getting all conceited about all of that now that you have him. Why is that? Well, because Paul explains it to us in verse 12. He says, remember that you were at one time separated from Christ. Remember that. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers in the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. To alienated ostracized, outside of the city gates. Call it what you want. 
Nobody wanted to play with you in the sandbox. You know, even to get the dog to play with you, as my father and I would say, you'd have to tie a pork chop around your neck. Alienated, apart from everybody else, not a part of the promise, and without hope and without God in the world. That paints a terrifyingly dismal picture, doesn't it? If that's where the story ended. But the story doesn't end there. It doesn't end there. It's not as though we bring anything to the table, or worse, in fact, that we aren't even looking to sit at the table most of the time. God says, I've got this beautiful thing here for you, this beautiful feast, and sometimes we're not even wanting to sit there. Much like the rest of humanity, clearly seen in in the Tower of Babel at the plains of Shinar, we don't even know that we are lost sometimes. It's a problem with the world. It's a problem with some of us Christians at times. We wander around in the desert when God has said, I've already made the way to the promised land for you. Why you keep knocking on the door and not coming in? See, that's why it's important that we live in love and in humility towards those who are outside of Christ, as well as towards our brothers and sisters here. You see, because the world looks at us and says, is this how it really is? What does the church look like? Does it look the same as the world? Does it look different than the world? Because if it looks the same as the world, why should I exchange what I got for that? It ain't no different. You see, we are to live in love and humility. Because we were once outsiders, Paul tells us, without hope and without someone in this world to save us. But you need to remember that at some point along the way in your life, somebody took the time to come to you in truth and in love to share who this Jesus was. At some point, they risked being made fun of and laughed at and ignored and scorned in order that you may know who Jesus is. Because you see, evangelizing this world is far more about telling who Jesus is, who he was, and what he has done in this world than it is getting in someone's face and telling them all the things that they do wrong. Listen, think for a minute of yourself. If you are honest, is there anybody on this planet that needs to remind you of what you do wrong? No, you already know. I don't need to tell you and you don't need to tell me. But evangelizing by telling who Jesus is and was and what it is he's done in order that we can be all that we're supposed to be opens up an incredibly different conversation now, doesn't it? You want to feel good about telling people what they're doing wrong? Go into your bathroom, look at the mirror. Get it all out of your system, and then move on. It's better that way. It's much better that way. You see, the Holy Spirit handles that task. It's not our job to handle that task. That's what the Bible tells us. Jesus, in telling his disciples that he must go away in order that the Holy Spirit or helper can come for us so that we can be filled with his presence lets them know what the Holy Spirit's task is. And it's not just an empowering here. John 16 says this, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Not just so we can dance happy and speak in tongues and be filled with the power of the Spirit and evangelize. The Holy Spirit comes to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. And concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. And that starts first and foremost with your pastor. That's where it starts. 
starts with the individual person. You see, before we move on, just an aside here, Jesus ends this statement with the ruler of this world being what? Judged. Full stop. Judged. You see, Satan has already been judged. He's already been found guilty. He's already lost. These are fundamental fact statements. We can't change them. That's what the Bible tells us. He knows this. Just a little bit of reading in the book of Revelation, it says that he knows his time is short. Okay? And he's got his knickers in a knot because of it. So what he's doing here is he knows he's lost, he knows he's judged, he knows he's found guilty, he knows he's without hope, and this is what he does. His desire is to take as many people with him to the pit as possible. Why? Because that hurts the heart of God. That's why. It hurts the heart of God, and that is the intent of Satan. And however he does that, he will do it. However he has the ability to do so, he will do it. Unfortunately, he does it a lot of times through people. Most of the time, he does it through people. Our job as Christians is to hold the line. Jesus says, this is your task, this is your job. Be salt and light in a world that doesn't realize it's lost. Hold the line. Don't give up the ground. I didn't know I was lost 32 years ago. Well, until I took a left turn in Swanton and ended up in Alberg two miles away from Canada. Then I really knew there was a problem. I'd never seen a sign that said Canada before, but I didn't know I was lost until he found me. I had no idea that I needed anything. But now being led by the Holy Spirit and knowing where I was and how he alone got me to where I am teaches me about his grace and it teaches me as hard as it is sometimes to be grace-filled towards people who are graceless. Because at some point along the road, somebody was grace-filled to me and I was graceless. You see, we need to be very careful, very careful to understand that while a great deal of what is said about the church, big C and little c, is simply wrong and hateful, some things, on the other hand, that we are judgmental towards those who do not look, think, and act as we do that we are super critical of people who do not believe what we believe and do not like what we like, and that we are hypocritical in our faith and the way in which we actually live it out outside of this church and painfully even within the community of believers is not entirely unfounded. I miss the mark. And I know I jokingly say every once in a while that I'm probably the only one, but I promise you I'm not. We all miss the mark. We have to understand that to not admit this and understand it and learn how we can do better at engaging those who don't know Jesus and engaging our brothers and sisters in Christ is to fail from the very start before we even get going in the same way the people Israel did over and over and over again in their calling, thus becoming Pharisees, wrapping up the mission that God gave them into themselves and saying, if you want to be with God, you go through me. And you do everything I tell you to do in the way in which I tell you to do it. You see, the failure of the people of Israel was a failure first and foremost of mission. Mission. They got off task. They were called by God to be his people for his world. 
They had gotten their freedom, they had gotten their identity, and they had gotten their mission from him. And at no time were they told to hide away from the badness of this world. Never once. Be a light of revelation to the lost nations. Our first reading again echoes the ministry of Jesus, doesn't it? This is Jesus, the perfect Israelite, fulfilling the call of his people and the commandments of the law to know how to evangelize and to live rightly in the world. Listen to me. To know how to evangelize and to live rightly in this world, we need to read and observe. Read and observe, most especially the Gospels. Okay? Don't just read to know what Jesus did so we can all have fat heads. Read and observe And then pray to observe how Jesus lived. You see, in Luke 4, he said, I have come to bind up the brokenhearted, to set the captives free, to release the prisoners, to give sight to those who are blind, to proclaim the acceptable year of our Lord. Then he took two steps back and said, boys and girls, today, in your hearing, this scripture is fulfilled. In other words, I'm the guy. He didn't hide anything. And then the Gospels paint the entire picture of what it looked like to be that way. So when you meet a woman woman at the well who nobody would even walk on the property of, that's what he's doing. I know what you need, but I'm going to go where you are. You see, we have to be careful. In doing all of that, we see that Jesus was fulfilling in perfect truth and love call of God on his people in and for his world. He then tells us to go and do the same thing. See, this is the picture that Paul is painting for the Ephesian church and for us when he says, starting in verse 13, but now in Christ you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create himself one new man in the place of two, and so making peace. See, all these people who were pagan, evil, living sensual lives, rebellious lives, worshiping idols, worshiping themselves, conjuring up demons, have in Christ been drawn near. Have in Christ been drawn near. Paul is not saying here that the law itself is no longer applicable, but we're running out of time, so we're not going to look at that. But in Jesus fulfilled every promise he did and commandment perfectly. Every promise and commandment perfectly, and as a result, we become the benefactors of his righteousness. That's the atonement. That's the atonement. He has become our peace. He has become our reconciliation. He is the mediator before God the Father in order that we can go before him as we should in a fractured and broken world. And not only that, the plan all along was to unite the people of Israel with the lost Gentile world in order to make one new man out of both and thus saving all humanity. So out of the people of Israel and the Gentile world, united under the headship of Jesus Christ, the people of God living in and for his world is what we are called to be. Tearing down the walls and freeing us to be his people for his world on mission to tell everyone what Jesus did for them. You see, that's verse 16 and 17. That he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those of us who are near. Again, he came for us. We didn't go looking for him. 
So because of Jesus, in the eyes of God, there is never a human being who is an alien and a stranger in a land. We're all one in sin. We're all one in redemption. The question that we have to ask ourselves is will we step into that redemption? Because just because God has opened the door for all, it doesn't mean that all will come. In fact, as I said, most with great sadness will not. They will look at it and say, we don't want to go that. We've blown it and he's fixed it. It's a beautiful story. We were lost and he found us. We as Gentiles were not part of the promise of Abraham, but in Christ we have access along with the people of Israel because of what he did if they believe in Jesus. Contrary to the world and its way of doing business, the kingdom of God does not have dividing walls of hostility. We are not to be set one against another as though we have cornered some market on grace and salvation. You see, Paul reminds the Ephesian church of this and he tells them that because that this is true and we are no longer strangers, we are members. And as we draw this to a close, this is important for us to understand, very important. We are members. We learned in chapter one that we are all sons of the king. Here we're learning that in addition to being individual sons of the king, we are members of a family, a community of people. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of what? The apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. You see, you are sons of the Father. You write that down somewhere. So one day when you're feeling like 900 pounds of sin sitting on a popsicle stick, you are a son of a king. And in addition to that, you are brothers and sisters in Christ. And I've quoted this before, but Bonhoeffer says this in in his um, doctoral understanding is when the primal communion with God was rent asunder in the garden, human community was rent too. It wasn't just our our communion with God. It was community with one another that was broken. But here's the powerful thing. So likewise, when God restores the communion of mankind with himself, the community of men with each other is also reestablished. That's from his doctoral thesis. That in Christ, the community of believers, that's what Paul's saying here. The one new man. This isn't an invention of magic and mysticism, not one bit. Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone of this. Now, I leave you with this. A little bit humorous unless you've actually seen me build. If anyone has taken some time to see how well I build, will understand that I am probably not your guy to lay a foundational cornerstone. Because a cornerstone needs to be square. It needs to be straight. It needs to be tight. And it needs to be absolutely true because from that cornerstone, everything builds out. And if you're a wee bit off at the start, by the time you're done, the walls don't line up. And that's not good. So you don't want me doing that. You want a professional master builder who knows what he's doing. If I could have the worship team come up. You see, our faith, thankfully, is not founded on how well I build, nor is it founded on how well you build. It's founded on how well Jesus builds. Paul tells us that he is the chief cornerstone 
of the entire deal. A historical man who lives in a historical time and place, whose life is told in the Gospels and explained in the epistles, spoken of by historians and prophets and preachers down through the years, we discover again here in chapter 2 of the book of Ephesians that in him we have something. Once again, God lavishes on us something. We are being built together to be a place where his Holy Spirit dwells. So that when we come together, as much as we need a building to keep us out of the snow and the rain, when we come together, you are the church. Individually filled with the Holy Spirit, corporately as a community and a body of believers, knitted together in the promises of God, in Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Humanity left to itself builds monuments to itself. Humanity left to itself blames itself, accuses itself, rebels against their creator. That's how humanity works. All the while, our king sits on his throne and says, come home, come home. I've made the way, come home. I have reunited this world and I have made one new man. Come home. And we're being launched out into the world with that message, with that truth. I close with Bonhoeffer, I promise. In his little book, Life Together, this is the last thing I will say, and we will close our song. The Christian cannot simply take for granted the privilege of living among other Christians. Jesus Christ lived in the midst of his enemies. In the end, all his disciples abandoned him. On the cross, he was all alone, surrounded by criminals and the jeering crowd. He had come for the express purpose of bringing peace to the enemies of God. So Christians too, now that we belong to him, so Christians too belong not in the seclusion of a cloistered life, but in the midst of enemies. Why? Because it's there that we find our mission says it is there that we find our work he has united the two and we are one new man on mission in this world bringing that ministry of reconciliation to those who haven't a clue that they are lost let's stand